Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Justin Katchis, and with me as always is Stephen Abila. Stephen, who do we have on the show today? Today we are lucky to host an extremely accomplished veteran of the U.S. Armed Forces and one of Stern's first-year MBA students, Patrick Vardero. We are honored to have him on the program today. Pat served in the Army as an officer for over 10 years, and after an incredible journey, has decided to make a career pivot and joined our Stern community to pursue his MBA. Wow, I cannot wait for Pat to share his story with us. Yeah, neither can I. You know, Pat introduced himself to much of the Stern MBA community at Stern Speaks, which as you know is a weekly audience where two current students get to share their journey, and I can't wait to hear even more. But as you also know, we also had a lot of help with this episode, and today we are joined by producer Dan Berdugo. Welcome to the program, Dan. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Justin. Hi everyone, I'm Dan, a second year MBA student here at Stern. I'll be heading to Bain & Company next year here in New York City, and it was a pleasure meeting Pat and learning about his story of humility, bravery, and patriotism, so thank you. Dan, thank you so much for all your hard work on this episode, and we are so grateful to have Pat here on the show. What do you think, Stephen? Should we get started? Let's do it. Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Stern Chats. I'm Justin Katchis. And I'm Stephen Avila. Steve, great to be back in the studio, man. How you been? I've been so well, Justin. Here we are, year two, NBA 2 life, doing this another season. It's great to be here. How are you? Super excited. Super excited. And we are thrilled to have first-year Sterny Pat Bardar with us in the studio today. Thank you so much for joining us, Pat. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. It's great to have you here, Pat. You know, many people here within the Stern NBA community have had the pleasure to hear a little bit about you through your inspiring talk you gave at Stern Speaks, but many more people listening over the radio waves weren't there. Could you give us a 30-second overview of your pre-Stern background before we get started? Sure, absolutely. Um, So originally from uh, a small uh, blue-collar town just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I went to college uh, up in Maine, Bowdoin College, great little liberal arts college, um, and uh, graduated in 2003. I learned... uh, during uh, coming to Stern that I'm the oldest person in the, cl- in the class at 37. Uh, so much wisdom. Yeah. Because yeah. after uh, undergrad, I went straight to the Army. I spent about 13 years in the Army, traveling all over the place, and then uh, decided it was time to do something different. And fortunately, found that was my way here to New York City and, and Stern. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining. Uh, we're super excited to hear your story uh, and hear your journey. Um, but we'd like to start these conversations at the beginning. You mentioned you grew up in Boston. Why don't you kind of talk us through how that was? I mean, I have like a really um, positive memories of my childhood. Um, like I guess like real like small community outside of Boston. Um, went to public school. It's just like a really like a community that had like a lot like a real high level of social capital. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of uh. Yeah, like the local sports teams are really important. I played, I ran track and cross country. Um, are you a Patriots it, fan? I, I, not, not any. I mean, I guess I am by like birth, <laughs> but like, but not really by uh, by interest. I hear that's genetic. Yeah. <laughs> and what about brothers and sisters? So I have a. I'm the oldest of three. Um, so my dad's a firefighter. My mom, um, she was like a stay at home homemaker, and then kind of had uh, worked as a secretary and on and off. Um, my uh, yeah, I have a younger brother uh, who's three and a half years younger than me, and then a younger sister, she's uh, eight years younger than me. Sounds like an idyllic upbringing. Yeah. Suburban life, father's a firefighter, yeah. oldest of three kids. It, it, it was like, a, it's funny when I talk to um, you know, people who are a little younger, like, I definitely grew up in the, still in a, in a community that was safe enough where, like, during the summer, like, my mom would literally kick us out of, out of the house, like, in the morning and, like, lock the door. <laughs> like, we, were not, we weren't allowed to go inside, and we could just get on our bikes and go roam and get in trouble and we'd come back to like basically eat meals and that was it and this is the pre-cell phone era wow i didn't have a so i did not have a cell phone until i was um like 20 i was in the army so i was like 23 or 24 when i first got a cell phone like i didn't have one wow. the whole time in college you see kids walking around in strollers with cell phones now <laughs> ain't that the truth <laughs> so tell, tell us pat you know so you you grew up in this great environment you decide to go to a liberal arts college what do you decide to study there um and why yeah, so uh, I studied uh, government. I was always been like a history buff, um, a little bit of like a political like news junkie, um, and so that was just kind of like where my you know interests lie. And so I, I fortunately found a good uh, good program there. Okay, and as you're studying this degree, 
something happens that changes your perspective a bit and, and your career goals. Uh, t- walk us through that. Yeah, absolutely. So like, I, I really, so I was the first one in my family to go to college, and so I think my, you know, my parents they probably wanted me to be like a lawyer or be a, a banker, um, like a you know a respected profession like that. And I, I didn't really, but I didn't have any experience with 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 any of those jobs directly. Um, but then my, you know, again, I was always like a history buff. I kind of always look back at like great leaders through history, like mm-hmm. one of my idols in history is Lawrence of Arabia. I used to actually watch the movie before before like track meets to pump me up, which is like a really weird pump up. Pump up movie. <laughs> we all have um, our methods. Yeah. Great flick. Uh, but uh, yes, yeah, fall of my junior year, September 11th happened. Um, and you know, that kind of really crystallized like what I um, wanted, what I wanted to do. And, and um, definitely like, the, like a lot of um, Americans and people at that time uh, made us think about service in a different public service in a different way. Um, so I actually went to the um, Army recruiter office, um, like on September 12th, which is my birthday, um, 2001, and uh, I spoke to him. It just wasn't like the right timing, and um, enlisting while still in college wasn't the right move. Um, so I kind of put it on hold for a little bit. But that that's when I really started to think seriously about um, doing like having some doing some military service. Did you have any inclinations that you wanted to join the military prior to September 11th, or was this I, something that happened and you were there literally the next day? I mean, I think like a lot of like especially like young men, you know, we respect our grandparents and our great uncles, and they I, they all had stories about World War II and Korea that I kind of grew up around. Um, and then, you know, the oftentimes just in popular culture and in, in the media and whatnot, um, it, it, military leaders are, are portrayed in a positive light. So I was kind of like admiration for it. Um, and I, I believe, and I believed in service and like, I saw it as like a key component of citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't really have like no like solid, like I didn't even consider a military academies when I was applying to college or and like a Bowdoin didn't have ROTC. I didn't, that wasn't a factor when I was selecting schools. So you, you've talked a little bit about military leaders that you look up to, right? People in history that you look up to. I'm curious how your younger siblings perceived you during this time period, thinking about going to the military, being the first person to go to college. How did that kind of relationship develop during yeah, this period? That's actually that's pretty interesting. So, like, we didn't have any direct military experience in the family. Um, but, you know, we all obviously had the same very similar upbringing. And so after I'd already been in the Army for about uh, four or five years, my brother, um, who he had just graduated from college, he was actually playing semi-pro baseball for two years in the mm-hmm. Canadian-American League, which is, like, a step below AAA mm-hmm. and, uh, or single A. And um, he called me up and he was like, hey, I w- I'm thinking about joining the Army. Um, really? Yeah. And so I, and I had to, and I like talked to talk through him, like what he w- wanted to do. Um, I was able to provide him some kind of inside knowledge on like the right um, professional path. out like, I didn't have the benefit of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he did, um, he actually ended up serving in 75th Ranger Regiment, which is a component of the Special Operations Command. Wow. Had an amazing career, four years. He um, got out after as a, as a sergeant, as a non-commissioned officer. He was actually part of the, um, Remember the during the Bin Laden raid, mm-hmm. um, the there was a he was he was part of the quick reaction force element that was staged at Jalalabad. If anything was to happen to that that SEAL Team Six element that con- actually conducted the raid, and so he was wow. there. Um, he was there when Bin Laden was killed, or not at the site, but he was like in the right. He was in that part of the country. Wow! So you've inspired your siblings to to be involved, and I imagine countless people throughout your career. I'm curious, you know, as you left the recruiter's office September 12th, decided that at that moment it wasn't right, went back to school, you know, what then made you decide that you were going to pursue this opportunity in the Army specifically? A lot of it just really comes down to, again, like the current events of the time. So, like, um, I finished out, I wasn't like, I was not a great student at all by any means. I'm still not. (laughs) Um, And uh, so I I didn't really, like, I, I didn't have, like, a good sense of, like, what I wanted to do professionally. Um, I actually applied to uh, graduate school, and I went to um, spend a year getting my master's of education immediately after Bowdoin. Where'd and, you go? Uh, Boston College. Fantastic yeah. school. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic yeah, you, school. You, you went to BC? I uh, went there for undergrad, uh, yeah. really. um, For the listeners out there, I'm literally rolling my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was, it was spring. Two th- I graduated spring 2003 from Bowdoin, and spring 2003 was when the United States invaded Iraq. And... Like I, I just, I could, I wanted to be part of it. I think I could just see that it was going to be like a, a, a it was going to be a, a generational kind of moment for my generation. And then by the fall of 2003, when it was Iraq was really starting to 
you can even see then that it was starting to go sideways a little bit. Again, like I really just wanted to be a part of it. It wasn't, I mean, I definitely was motivated in the sense of like, you know, I felt a call to serve. But I think more so than that, it was more like the the romance of it and just being a young mm-hmm. man that wasn't really thinking necessarily with his head um, and not wanting to miss out on something that I thought was going to be impactful for my generation. Yeah. It's a really interesting uh, dichotomy between, I guess you're the first person to get a master's degree as well in your family. Yeah. Right. And you're really kind of pushing pushing forward on that front but also your you know your heart is is somewhere else right you want to be there you you feel emotionally like you should be serving and you should be a part of that when i was working at or was getting my master's at bc um at the same time i was like a long-term substitute and track coach at my old high school and what really did it for me was like one day i'm sitting at my old high school which i had only just left if you know a few years before and i'm looking around i'm like i'm never going to leave this place i need to do something else and that really like got me motivated to join to this sounds like the beginning of a Bruce Springsteen song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So you decide to join the Army, and tell us the process once you actually enlist. You know, what type of training do you have to go through? Do you know that you're going to be deployed at this point in time? You know, what's the game plan? To back it up a little bit first, like, again, like, I knew nothing about the military other than kind of, like, what you could study in school. And so I originally, um, at the second time in 2003, tried to enlist to be a, a naval intelligence officer or a, sub, uh, or a submarine officer. I don't know why. I had, like, I think visions of, like, World War II movies in my head, and that's what I, like, the nice uniforms and stuff. U571. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, uh, but it was such a long process, and they finally came back, and they were like, they told me my grades weren't good enough to be a, a submarine officer or an intelligence officer. Like, you need, like, advanced physics and stuff, and I didn't have that. And they told me I could be a supply officer. And I didn't know, I knew enough that I didn't want to do that. And mm-hmm. so I went to the Army recruiter office, and, like, the next day I was in because this was, like, 2003, and they had a completely different... Um, personnel need than the than the navy did um but yeah so I, after enlisting i started um i got a basic training date for june 2004 and then i was down at fort benning georgia for about 14 months through a series of like progressively more advanced training starting with basic training going through officer candidate school where i was commissioned as a um as a second lieutenant that's there's three commissioning sources for officers in the, in the U.S. Um, military. You can go to one of the service academies like West Point. You can do ROTC in college, or you can do like I did, enlist and go to officer candidate school, which is like an intensive uh, 14-week program to, to give you the finishing touches of being an officer, I guess. Um, and then I had, after that, I had another uh, eight months of um, kind of advanced infantry training that um, culminated with uh, airborne school um, where you do five five jumps a joke it's like they joke that it's five night jumps because you're closing your eyes the whole time when <laughs> you're jumping and, out of a plane right <laughs> just yeah, to yeah, be clear yeah. yeah 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 how high like, is this plane uh like a thousand feet um high enough yeah it's i mean it's <laughs> and like that like so like when i like a combat jump um like guys in 75th have done or 7th range regiment have done in afghanistan and iraq those jumps are occurring at like 400, 500 feet. Oh my god! Um, with, and they have significantly more weight. So like jumping out of a plane at a thousand feet with like no weight, it's kind of. I mean, the the thought of doing it sucks, but once you get out the door, it's pretty pretty fun and an easy ride down. Does it get easier the more times you do it? I, I I've, I'm not like a I've had like a ten or eleven jumps, and so I every time was like the first time for me. <laughs> first time for it's me. Like I riding think, a bike stand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Duh. <laughs> I, and, I, and I personally don't, I question anyone who says it gets easier anytime because it's kind of a counterintuitive thing to jump out of a perfectly good, good aircraft. Um, but yeah, the, and then the, the final school I had down there at Fort Benning before I was kind of um, uh, signed off on to go and um, out into the force was uh, Ranger School, which is a like a real rite of passage for um, infantry officers in the Army. Um, it's the Army's um, premier leadership school, and they use um, the small unit tactics as a as a mechanism to teach really like small unit leadership. So, in, in telling this story, you know, you you give these great details of jumping out of planes yeah. and doing this really intense training, but you almost offhandedly, when we talked about this before this program, spoke about you had an experience being struck by lightning. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So, like, um, so Ranger School is divided into three phases, right? So you have a phase that occurs; they're all about um, twenty days long. You have phase that occurs, occurs down in Fort Benning, where you, um, and then the second phase is up in the mountains of DeLonga, Georgia, and the third phase is down in the swamps of Fort Eglin, Florida. Um, and so that second phase, we're doing, it's all mountain training, and we learn, like, military mountaineering skills. The second day of uh, that phase, I was with my, the platoon that I was ass- assigned in ranger school, and we were kite, we were, like, moving to a, do, like, an ambush, like, a, like a, as part of the training. 
so the whole thing is like we're we're in this like closed environment like we're just in our own little world like fighting the like the Krasnovians or whatever the the enemy name that has been invented and uh we started to have a storm was coming through and so because of for safety concerns we needed to like sit sit down and kind of sit out the storm well we were on like the highest ground around when when we did this and we were we were all just so smoked from um so the thing with ranger school is they in order to replicate this the stress of combat they deprive you of food and sleep because they can't shoot real bullets at you, but they can do that. And so we're just, everyone's just smoked and like droning. We're really thinking through what we were doing. And so we're sitting on top of this mountain and yeah, sure enough, like the storm did come through and it hit a tree about, um, about 15 meters from me. And then my buddy and I, who were, we were sitting on a log, um, just kind of like with our poncho over trying to, it was pouring rain. All of a sudden I just like blown up in the air, like six, like literally like six feet up in the air and then six feet back like all white everywhere all I could see and I felt a charge of electricity go up from my left leg left foot all the way through my left leg and then through my torso and exit my right shoulder blade and I just wow. like and I was so but the thing was like we were all so out of it like no one knew what happened and like and so in my mind I actually thought that we were like like there was a I thought that we were back down to Fort Benning where there's like big artillery training ranges and I thought like there had been like an errant artillery shell or something like black like like um shot at us like i was just like so out of it and like finally someone was like no lightning lightning we all like ran down the hill but when that happened i was just like sitting there and i was like doing everything i could to like not cry and all i wanted was my mom to just like come and hold me (laughs) (laughs) that's real wow that is that is quite a story did you find that you could you know speak another language or or are you left-handed now (laughs) yeah like uh i did have like some like weird like magnetic stuff going on for a little bit but uh, wow yeah they're like, nice try, Pat. Yeah. Try, try to get out of this one. Yeah. It's not gonna work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you go through uh, training, and then what happens next? You yeah, so so um, complete training, and then you're assigned to. I was assigned to. There's um, about thirty brigades in the army. So a brigade's like a forty-five hundred person fighting unit, and it's a, the main like modular unit that we deploy um, to fight. Uh, the army does, um, and so I was assigned to uh, the a brigade in the one hundred first Airborne in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Um, and I showed up there on September 11th, 2005. And then two weeks later I was on, uh, the timing and like, I knew I was, I knew I was going into a unit that was about to deploy. Um, but yeah, two weeks later I was on, um, a flight to, uh, Kuwait. Uh, we spent two weeks in Kuwait and then up in Iraq for 12 months after that. So if we could, if we could pause here for a second, I'm curious to think, to, to understand how, Kind of your mental space was, you know, two years prior in master school in Boston, an area you're very familiar with, near, you're very near your family. You still have a connection to your your high school. How do how how have how had you changed from that point right up until your first deployment? Yeah, that's a great question. Like, I mean, so I changed a lot in the sense of, I mean, I just learned so much, and it's like stuff you take for granted, like, because um, they like that every military service does this. They essentially and the whole starting point at basic training is they break you down completely and then they build you up from the start and then that's kind of going on in all these schools that I attended and so like basic things like language that I uh, the language that we use in the military just is so specific um, and then the dress um, and then just like this whole new world of like tactics and like how we integrate um, fires assets with maneuver assets in order to um, make effects on the battlefield um, so it's like I had a lot of tech, new technical knowledge mm-hmm. um, and like new technical skills that I didn't have, but in terms of like me, me personally, I was very much just, just still the same person. Like mm-hmm. I, yeah, I'd been through some adversity in the sense of like difficult training, but like nothing really like life altering yet at this point. Other than getting hit by lightning, right? <laughs> and then and I'll and I'll say like I knew I was going to Iraq, and um, and everyone knew like kind of knew we were going to Iraq at this point mm-hmm. in terms of like my peers we all kind of knew we were going to be ending up there at some point or another um but like I had no idea what what I mean we were still at this point to that early 2005 thinking about Iraq as like the old Bathists were gonna were the ones that we were fighting there we were mm-hmm. we were very um very very inexperienced at this point in terms of like what combat really meant in that kind of environment I'm curious. You're you're from Boston, right? You went to a liberal arts college in, in New England, and then you get to the to the military. How are those environments different in terms of the people that you were around? You know, so this is that's actually like a great question, cause, and I this is something that I did not fully appreciate honestly until I came here to Stern. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think like the military gave me a ton of like gifts and talents, or a ton of gifts, um, and you know, I learned a lot. But probably one of the I think 
greatest gifts that I got from my military service that I didn't really appreciate until I got hired to Stern after having about a year of separation was uh, the U.S. military really is a cross-section of of American society. It represents American society, I think, better than probably just about any other institution in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'm, I was a, and being a, a, like a kid from the Northeast and went to like a liberal arts college, I had some misconceptions about that the military was going to be kind of like everyone there was going to be from Texas. It was going to be a, like a very conservative um, like organization, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was not the case at all. Like I, in my, during my course of my military career, I, um, you know, I met people from literally every state, every single walk of life, every single kind of socioeconomic demographic that you can think of. Um, and it's like, it's subtle and you don't really even quite realize it. But that experience kind of working with people and having to like trust people and get to know people of just like so many different diverse backgrounds, I, I think has been just like the greatest gift that the, that the military provided me because it just provides so much more perspective and uh, on kind of how um, uh, other people in the United States and the world live. And so like to cut to look more pointed to your, your question, it, um, there was like, there was obviously like cultural change, but it wasn't cultural change in the sense of like, I was in a different part of the country. It was cultural change in that the U S military and then within the, the respective services of the military, like the army, and then even within the army, the infantry, there, there is some, there is definitely like a culture there that you, that is distinct. And that, that's that was more like the cultural kind of, um, like change and um, mm-hmm. that I had to uh, get used to. Thank you for sharing that. That's a really interesting perspective that I think a lot of us who never served don't have. Um, and you know, Pat, you have such an impressive uh, career in the military. I mean, you spent 13 years in the Army. You rose from a second lieutenant to major. You spent four combat deployments totaling 45 months. You know, just walk us through that tenure. Uh, you know, imagine this was very formative. You went through life-changing experiences. Uh, you know, can you talk a little bit about, you know, as you entered and you, as you got to Iraq, you know, just kind of the, the progression of your career once you got there? Yeah, sure. So, um, like, just kind of, like, real, like, big pictures, like, like at Stern right now, we're doing like I'm um, you know first year recruiting, and I hate like the elevator pitch question, or and I hate the um, and I, another question I get often just being here in New York City when I, people find out I was in the army, they're always like, well, what was that like? And I never really know what to say because it's like I was in the army for 13 years, I did like a, a lot of different things, you know. How do I and and oftentimes that question implies like a lack of familiarity too with the military, and which mm-hmm. is like, well, mm-hmm. what do I and I have to ask myself like, what do I have to explain? Um, but like big picture, if I was to look at like think about my 13 year career, I kind of put it into like three three like buckets. Like the first third of it, approximately a little bit longer, it was all Iraq focused. Um, that's when I did 40, I did three deployments to Iraq over about 40 months total, um, and I, I rose from. And th- these are like the most formative years. I rose from second lieutenant to captain. And for perspective for our audience, yeah. how long is a deployment typically? Um, it, it, I mean that's like a very um, at this time, the Army was doing 12 to 15 months deployments. Okay. Um, they later on um, moved down to about nine months. Um, the Marines would do more frequent deployments, but at shorter shorter intervals. But yeah, so I had a, like like this, our first period was all focused on Iraq, was conventional um, forces. Um, then I had this really interesting mer- uh, middle period that was really, really lucky um, to do an assignment with 75th Range Regiment, which is a component special operations command, and then, which is, um, like this next period was all focused on Afghanistan. So I was with 75th, which was doing a mission in Afghanistan at the time. And then because of that experience, I got to go to work at the State Department um, for the um, Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, focused on um, counterterrorism issues in Afghanistan. Um, so I had like, this really cool kind of like more strategic, um, higher um, level um, experience, but all Afghan focus. And then my last two years in the Army, I was in Europe, um, where uh, everything at that time was focused on NATO, which is like super refreshing for once and to not be focused on on the Middle East and mm-hmm. um, and that and Europe right now is a very dynamic environment ever since uh, Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. The United States and NATO have been doing a lot to um, kind of reassure our East European allies. So during that period, I got to travel to like every single Warsaw Pact country. It was a pretty cool experience. But um, that first deployment right after like my initial training. Um, was 12 months long in Iraq, and that was by far my more, most formative. Um, it was the most violent, um, but it was also like the, as a, it's being a platoon leader is the, that's that the first job that you have as a infantry officer. 
Um, and it's the one that like everyone has kind of in common. And that's where you like the first time you're 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 a true like leader in the military. Um, and that's essentially the job I had my entire time in, in Iraq, that first deployment. I'm wondering if you could talk about the expectations that you had compared to the reality of that first deployment. You talked a little bit earlier about how you kind of romanticized this idea of defending your country and serving. Compare that to what it was actually like. It's kind of it's kind of like the like even like stern like where you like you take a strategy class and you like you you learn like the framework right like Porter's five forces or whatever, um, but then like none of that all that like that's a nice like it looks good on a slide and it makes sense it's and but it's like actually really really messy in execution right and like there's all these other factors that go into go into play and so I had like a theoretical kind of concept of what my job was going to be and I had like a theoretical concept of what the mission was going to be but then I got there and it was yeah that was the the maybe the framework of the outline but it was just far far messier and just the um and far more fluid than like I like was ever pre- prepared for yeah so like an, an, another aspect with that is what I like there's I went through this like long transformation that a lot of soldiers go through that first deployment and and one of them was we're taught like it's all about like the mission you want to like the mission always comes first right but very quickly it was like became evident that like I didn't the mission was so muddled at that time right this is 2005 this is before like Petraeus came in before Bush like doubled down with the five extra brigades under, under the surge before Rumsfeld got fired um, and so like we were still really fill, figuring things out as a country and what we were trying to do in Iraq and in fact there's moves to try to get us to like withdraw now even though secure, like security situation c- continued to decline um, but I uh, like went through this transformation where like eventually like my guys like we became we became so focused just on like protecting my guys that I was with. So I had like a 35 man platoon and like all the, um, like so much of our, uh, my energy was like more focused about keeping them healthy. Mm-hmm. Not to the sense of like, we were avoiding missions that would be dangerous or not whatnot, but um, more like it was, what was more important was how well we did as a team and that we were all kind of together and safe as opposed to whatever overarching objective I thought I had joined for, I couldn't even remember. Mm-hmm. You talked a little bit about your time at the State Department and working with NATO, and I'm curious how these non-combat roles uh, helped transform your view of like the role of the military, and you know how you were able to leverage all these lessons that you had learned while in combat to this more, I guess you could say, diplomatic role. Um, and just if you could talk about you know transitioning to this time in Europe and what that was like for you. Sure. Uh, so like, so those roles, so like the, the military, and I, I think just about every service is this way. Certainly on the officer side. You kind of have always have one or two roles. You're either like in a in a command type position, so it's like for me, like platoon leader, company commander, where you have direct command authority, and like you're the kind of the buck stops there and own an organization. Um, and then you have these staff positions, and most of your career is actually in these staff type roles. Um, and that's what my I was essentially you know a staff officer, but wearing a suit and tie, supporting State Department folks at the State Department when I was there. And then my my time in Europe, I was a I was a staff officer as well, and everything was focused on planning. Um, like, or mo- I've always always was kind of focused on more the operations side of the house, not as opposed to like um, logistics. But it's so like future planning um, uh, for training and other operations. Um, the time my time at the State Department was was just like absolutely. It was one of the best years I had professionally for sure, because um, it just got to see like so much more on how like what was going on i really got to see behind the policy making curtains it's like I, I i arrived at like just the right time so i um i had when I, my previous assignment had been with 75th um, ranger regiment and there was they were responsible at the time for um a, a lot of our counterterrorism operations that we were conducting in afghanistan and i'd had a, i'd been there um part executing uh, helping execute these um operations predominantly form a precision airstrike where we integrate a bunch of um, a variety of different intelligence platforms um, to conduct uh, precision strikes against the um, higher level strategic targets uh, and operational targets. Um, and so with that experience, I'm, I showed up the State Department. My second In my second day at the State Department, um, the Obama administration started a, what became a year-long review of our counterterrorism policy in Afghanistan. 
And because I had literally just come from there, I was like so familiar with so much of the of the issues that were like a you know I, I had like real world, world experience with so many of the is, issues that were being um, uh, discussed in that um, process that I like kind of fell into this amazing role where I was I had I had a lot of um, ownership over kind of facilitating the uh, helping formulate states kind of um, position on these issues as they re related uh, in Afghanistan. And so like that experience like just opened, like helped me see like, just really broadened my perspective and helped me understand kind of like the why behind some what way some things are. What it also really was um, like, and this is like a, this was like a lesson that I've kind of like learned repeatedly like through my career, um, but it was like really um, reinforced to me here was, have you ever seen that movie uh, Zero Dark Thirty? Oh yeah. Like, all right. So you, do you remember the scene at Langley when like the the female analyst who's like the she's the she's the lead and she's in this room and I think um, and like whoever it wasn't the CIA director but it was like her bosses you know, her, his subordinate they're in this room and they're like hey this is it like no one else in this room is gonna kill like there's no one else there's no other room of people trying to kill Bin Laden right now this is it everyone you're all here in this room right now and like I kind of had like a moment like that like when I was at the State Department when not about Bin Laden but like. Like there was no one like there was no that was it like I was in the room there was no one else in the room and I was and that like as a senior captain junior major in the army I was kind of like what's going on there like there's shit like we don't have better people than me to be like doing this right now like I like <laughs> a little uh, imposter syndrome yeah absolutely right. and um but the reality was like I uh, you know there were there people more qualified in terms of like experience and and like knowledge absolutely but like I would happened to be there it's so much of it was timing happy to be there and um and it, it was a, an issue per like you know personally like, important to me um and so you just kind of like own it and just like run with it and that was something like so so often people like uh, i find like an organ organizationally you're like well you know that's someone else's like no one's gonna do it like oftentimes you just like t showed a little initiative it's like more work to slow you down so if you have a good idea just go ahead and run with it so, Pat, in many ways, this sounds like a very transformational part of your life. You're in Europe. You're working in this new dynamic environment. And professionally, it seems like everything's going pretty well. I know uh, this was also a very transformational part of your life in a more personal way as well. And I was wondering if you could walk us through that of what else was happening in your life during this time. Right. Yeah. So um, the State Department was, like, incredible for me professionally. And it was also um, really impactful um, for me personally as well. So that was the first time. Um, so like I said, I, I grew up in like a real blue collar town about outside of Boston, a Catholic family, you know, Irish, Italian, Catholic family. Um, my family is like, you know, probably left of center a little bit. Like never, never was anything disparaging about anyone, but like um, the, when I w got to the State Department, that was the first time that I ever professionally worked with anyone who happened to be a gay or, or a lesbian. And like the diplomats of the State Department, they're like the special operations of the U.S. government. I, mean, they, I just have so much admiration um, for for them and how, what they accomplish, the impact they have with so li limited resources. And so I was just so like and just in awe of these people I was working beside, doing amazing things for God and country, some of whom might happen to be gay. Um, and for me, that was that was really powerful because at the same time, I was also like finally reconciling my own sexuality. Looking back on it now, I kind of I always knew I was gay. I mean, that was my first like sexual thoughts and everything. Um, but just not having the like the exposure to it, um, and I just this was again like I graduated college in two thousand three. It was still like a little bit early mm -hmm. um, before we were talking about it more like publicly publicly. Um, and so I just didn't have any like examples or role models, and I just didn't know it was like an option. Um, and so it took me a long time to first figure it out, and then. A little, and then longer to like accept it, and so um, that time the State Department. What actually happened before the State Department was "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" got repealed. I was a company commander in Baghdad when that happened, and so I got I had a role in, in like instructing my company on um, on the repeal, and it was and like I took it really seriously because at that point I definitely like knew I was probably gay, um, and. Uh, and I, you know, I care. I wanted to make sure we were like doing everything possible to make like a welcoming environment for the sol the few soldiers who I'm sure were also gay in my company. Um, but yeah, that went off without a hitch, which was like a real credit to like the the soldiers in the in the army and how like there might have been some angst and con confusion before that that policy got repealed. But once it 
got repealed. People, you know, kind of saluted and marched on. There was no issues. But yeah, so at the State Department that year, that was, was also 2000, um, this was also the year that marriage equality got passed by the Supreme Court. Um, and now I'm working, Don't Ask, Don't Tell had just been repealed a couple of years before. And I'm working for the first time with these you know, amazing men and women who happen to be gay. Um, and I was just that much more mature. And so that was like, uh, that was when I like really started to think strong about separating from my wife, who at that time we'd been married for about four or five years um, and, and coming out. It took me, it ended up taking me a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. um, um, not until I got to, to Germany in t um, early 2016 when I finally came out. Um, but all those those like societal changes were really important to me because, yeah, I'm a, like I consider myself somewhat left to center, like right, but politically, but I'm a conservative person generally, and um, it was a real those those signals from society that it was like you could live a normal life and it was okay to be gay was really really like, important in my uh, my own kind of like journey there. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, and again, thank you for sharing uh, this part of, of your story. I'm curious, I think a lot of people have this perception about the military as a hyper-masculine place. Um, I, I want to know about your experience coming out in that environment. And were people accepting? Was it challenging? How did, how did, how were you perceived once you had come out? Right. Yeah, so, so it's a couple, two things there. First, um, it, I mean, just like upfront, it was so anticlimactic. I mean, it was just like not knowing. I mean, there was some like novelty in like, oh, I was married and now I'm gay. <laughs> like, but there was like, it was so anticlimactic in terms of coming out. Um, and it, and I think that goes back to my earlier point about how the U.S. military really is representative of American society. And so now mm -hmm. it's 2016. American society had already moved on. Like the 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 army was not going to waste any more brain power on this issue. Like they'd already moved on. They accepted it, and like, and the people who were serving were, you know, representative cross-sectional American. They were already moved on as well. Um, so that, that's like the first point I think is like really important to understand. And then the second thing, when I did come out, I was I had some advantage in in that I'd already had a reputation. So I was already established not just in the army. I had a reputation, but I, like definitely within the brigade I was assigned to at the time in Germany. Um, I, at this point, I'm a major. There's only f like 42 majors in a, an army brigade out of 4,500 soldiers. Um, and so I was like a, a well-known kind of prominent person in the, in the unit. Um, and people had kind of already made up their opinion on me one way or the other by that point. So like coming out wasn't going to have a, much impact on that. Um, I will say like I, I, I came out kind of like fast because I was so like so ready to. Um, I mean, I didn't like send like a Facebook message or anything, but like I... Um, I felt like a little bit. Was that an option? I don't know. Check. I felt like a little bit of responsibility um, when I came out in the military, too, because at least at that time, like, I didn't know any infantry officers of my rank who were gay. Um, There's one general officer who, um, who who's gay and married, and he's been like um, actually connected with me, but like, was a great friend when I needed in the sense that he was able to like talk to about a lot of the issues I was dealing with at that time. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, for me, like, I was definitely the, I, I was the most senior person definitely in my brigade and mm -hmm. then, like, broader, like, throughout the infantry within the Army as far as I knew. There was no one else. Um, and so, like, I made a point of going around to all my peer majors and, like, coming out to them individually. Not so much because I necessarily were, like, close to them or really cared that they, they knew, but because I, I was certain that there were other younger officers and younger soldiers within their unit who were also gay, but um, hardly anyone was out. In the, and there was, like, very few people out in the unit that were well-known. And so, like, I wanted them to know, like, have that experience with me, um, with someone who they, like, least respected professionally, most of them, um, so that when one of their younger soldiers did kind of come out, they weren't, like, it wasn't, like, the first time they were dealing with it. So, yeah, you talked about the importance of visibility and how important that was for you and your coming out process and perhaps may have delayed it, you know, for, for many years. Yeah. I think that's a feeling that many people resonate with. And now here you are, as you mentioned, you know, this major figure, uh, and you're, you're out and you're talking to people. Do you have a sense of, you know, by being out and being visible, you were able to help others come out in I, their way, and I, you know, as you go through your career? I mean, it's hard to, like, kind of say that, you know, scientifically, but I, I, when I came out, there, there was no, there were no younger, there was no one else younger officers who were, like, out and well-known. Um, and when I left that unit a year later, um, each of our seven subordinate battalions, or each of the seven subordinate battalions in that unit um, had, like, one or two young junior officers who, who were out. Um, 
and That's so and so I like to think that being kind of a visible person in that sense, I, I did help like help kind of make it the path a little easier for some people. Absolutely, and even just telling the story and being here today, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah, thank yeah you. Pat. If I you know listening to your story today, I hear a lot of firsts, right? I mean, you're the oldest sibling, right? So you have kind of this burden of responsibility to set the example for others. But you're the first one to go to college, the first one to go to graduate school, the first one to join the military, and then the first one to come out, you know, within your kind of unit. It sounds like you've kind of been spearheading and, and being a leader your entire life, which is which is uh, obviously a testament to you. Continuing along that thread, we'd like to talk about how you ended up here at Stern. So when I came, so like when I came out, like I was at that point, like I was the army owned me. I was I was a major. I was like a company man. Like and I was already in for twelve years at that point. Typically, about ten year mark, people do not get out after ten years because at twenty years, you get pension, a pension, defined pension benefits um, that you start collecting like that day. Um, but if you stay 19 years and 365 four days, you don't get anything. Mm. Um, and so, and I was, you know, and I had like, at that point, I already had like a professional network within the army. I had reputation. I had like, I knew I could, you know, I was, I was a professional there, and I had like real skills and that were tangible. Um, but when I came out, and I kind of, and I separated from my wife, um, and my, my four-year-old, my at the time, uh, two and a half, three-year-old daughter went back to the United States with my ex-wife. Um, I kind of like made an assessment, but it was really like a personal um, decision first, like that I needed to transition out of the military, just because, not because it was difficult being gay in the military, but because like where I was personally and and be able to like make up for some of the personal um, sacrifices that I had made, I needed to not be moving every two years living in army based towns where you know wasn't really the the population i wanted to be around and also just like the like i said the army like would own me at that point i was not gonna my time my free time was gonna be extremely limited going forward and so that i so i kind of looked around like i had always been in, i mean i'd been interested in business school before for a lot of i think a lot of like people come from non-traditional backgrounds like i i needed like the the career accelerator that I was hoping to get out of the MBA because I, I was and I still have like a lot of angst about like how much like kind of um, knowledge I've given up and like like rank literally given up um, from leaving the military to like start over in a new industry um, and so that's why I wanted the MBA and then I mean I, I think again like most everyone or like a lot of us here it's, it was all about New York City mm. um, I wanted to be in New York City I wanted to be in downtown Manhattan I actually listened when I was applying. I actually listened to some Stern Chats um, to, to kind of to help me. Uh, Pat, you didn't learn, have to say that. <laughs> I'll be learning a little bit about the school. Your check's in the mail. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, Pat, tell us a little bit more about your transition to civilian life. You mentioned wanting to be in New York, wanting to be a, a full-time student yeah. again. Has that been, you know, I imagine there comes with challenges with that. You know, tell us about being back here in, in a full-time student school perspective. Sure, yeah. So, I, uh, like, and I totally underestimated it. So when I was getting out of them, I actually applied fourth round um, in, I would have been your guys' year. So I applied fourth round in 2016, right? And I didn't, I got waitlisted. And Laura Burke at the time, who was the, the veterans recruiter, she called me, I mean, she, and this, this single act by Laura, by the way, like spoke volumes about like Stern. Um, she, she called me up and she's like, the waitlist is really, is really long. In not so many words. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But if you want, we can interview for the 2018 intake. And at the time, I was, I was like, bummed that that was gonna happen because I was getting out of the military that July, and so I was gonna have to like figure out how I was gonna support myself for a year. But I also had only applied to two other schools, and I didn't get into either either of them, so it was like I didn't have a whole lot of options. And so I went interviewed, and then obviously got accepted, but for the 2018 intake. And so I moved st- when I got out of the army in July from Germany. I moved straight to the city and I had like a year to to kind of get established in the city and like adjust. And that year was such, like I was, again, I was pretty bummed. I wanted to just like jump, like at a typical like, you know, type A person, I wanted to just jump right into it. But I really needed that year to like, I mean, I was in the army for 13 years, spent like so much time um, overseas. I needed that year to just kind of slow down, mm-hmm. like and adjust to like how the normal world like works. Just in that, and like, and think about what I really want to do. Cause I, like I knew I wanted to like get a good job, but like I didn't. After that, like I didn't know anything at all. And so I was able to use that that year to kind of um, figure out that I think consulting is like where I want to go initially. Um, 
learned a little bit about some other industries. I took a job um, really, really entry level at this um, small tech startup in Brooklyn. Um, they developed a smart shopping cart, like for grocery shopping cart, pretty cool technology. But I was like employee number like 11 and doing like sales. And it was a great, like I loved the people I was working with and I learned a lot, but like, hey, like the actual job I did not enjoy. It. And it was, mm-hmm. and it was like, and I wasn't, but I was like so ill prepared for it too because like, they needed someone who was just going to, like, nug and sell stuff. And, like, mm-hmm. I walked in, and, like, I immediately was, like, thinking, like, a major in the Army. and like, how I could, like, reorganize everything and, like, make us more efficient and, st- like, ma- like more managerial. And, like, mm-hmm. it was a good experience for me to go through that and figure out, like, hey, like, you're starting over again. Like, no one cares that you have these great, like, organizational leadership ideas. You need to, you need to like, learn some technical skills and demonstrate value that way. And so that was really important. Um, something else which, like, really was really helpful for me was – I was like really excited. Like so, in my time in the army, um, the longest I lived anywhere was 15 months. So mm-hmm. like I've never been able to like put roots down. So I grew up in like I said like like this real um, community centric small town, and so I'm used to like being a member engaged in the community. And so I was like wanting to come. Hope I'm hopefully I'll like never leave New York, and I wanted to like put roots down here. And so I was shopping around for like I wanted to get invo- like volunteer in some way, and so I kind of shopped around for a like a nonprofit that I could be involved with, but like more than just kind of uh, like I wanted to provide some leadership, some leadership just because mm-hmm. like I knew that was like something that I could offer. And so like I fortunately found um, the International Rescue Committee, which is a aid organization. It's been around since like the 30s. Uh, Albert Einstein actually founded it um, hmm. to bring um, Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany. But now they're they're huge and they they're unique. They're the only non NGO in the world that assists refugees all the way from point of crisis through a variety of different uh, mechanisms up all and then through like the whole spectrum that a refugee may go through including down to resettlement here in the United States um, that's and, incredible yeah it's a, they're, they're an incredible organization they're like 40 countries 28 US cities um, and they have a uh, within the so the IRC is a huge huge NGO but within it they have um, a young professional um, organization called generation rescue or gen R um, and they do a lot of advocacy um, and some um, volunteering with the resettlement offices here in New York and New Jersey, um, as well as like some some uh, minor fundraising. And so I was able to get, and I I wanted to do something too that was like international focus, just because I've like spent so much time working in that space. And so I was able to, I fortunately found Gen R, and I was able to like, and I kind of like finagled my way onto their leadership committee for the chapter here in New York. And I was like really nervous going to like my first board meeting. So there were like you know, twenty or thirty uh, members there, and they're all like. Real like real professionals, not like I was a like in the army, but they were like real professionals. They're all like, you know, like on, like entrepreneurs running successful companies, um, like hedge fund manager, investment bankers, attorneys, um, consultants. Um, this is the State Department all over again. Yeah, no, <laughs> right. so, no, the imposter syndrome is back. Yeah, exactly, know? exactly. And so like I was like pretty like intimidated by it, but like after like one meeting and like starting, to, I figure out like maybe I, I definitely lacked a lot of knowledge in a lot of areas, but like I definitely like still could like contribute and how and I mm-hmm. the, my my like skills in terms of like leadership communication and be able to kind of like see between the seams and how we can like facilitate um, whatever initiatives we we're trying to push were, were very very relevant my time with the gen R has probably been like the best part of my last year here in New York City that's awesome in terms of professionally yeah, it's just been so rewarding and it's been the only thing during this weird transition period I had between going from having so much responsibility in the army to having none before I started stern it was like the only thing that like would let me like get glimpses of feeling normal again and like useful. Um, so, so that was, but that was really important because it, it's given me like a lot of confidence that I got a lot to learn, but I can do it and I've got the You can right hold tools. your own. Yeah. Absolutely. So it sounds like you've taken this last year to really, you know, transform back into a civilian life. I'm curious if it has also given you some perspective on your military career and if you could share any of those insights with us. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely number one is like that, like I said, like the, it's such a gift to have been able to work to like work with so many people from so many different backgrounds, um, and and like real substantial work and get to know them like that that and of its and I didn't appreciate that when I was in the army so that, that like more so than anything else is is uh, like one of the best gifts I had and like the people that you work with in the military are just like a soldier you literally train a soldier to like claw, crawl through mud when bullets are getting shot at I mean mm-hmm. that's like you can't like not love someone like that I mean it's there's something wrong with you. I think another thing which has been which has been really um, impressed upon me is just like how an organization like the army like it really def- it runs on trust like everything is comes down to trust like at the end of the day like you have to like trust the guy the guy or gal on your left or right and 
And then that translates into that means you can, uh, if you trust each other's intentions, then you can show vulnerability. If you can, um, if you trust each other, you know, their technical competence, then you can like empower them to do to do more things. Um, and so that that trust kind of like is in every aspect of what we do and what how we run. Um, and so now applying that like in a in like a business context, I like that's often like one of the first things I I look at when like in, like we're doing like a business case study is like, well, organization culturally. Is like is there is there a cultural trust where people can like take risks and they can communicate like that's often like a first area that I like I didn't again like I didn't really fully appreciate like how the military was unique in that aspect and that's like something that uh you know, I spend like a lot of time thinking about so Pat as we wind up the interview and we think about Veterans Day you know is there anything that you like to reflect as a veteran what you think people should be thinking about during this time Yeah I mean that, that's a great question so first like this and this is just like me personally. Um, it's a it's really awkward when when you get when people like thank you for your service, um, and a lot of times you just don't. Again, it's like one of those things you don't know what to say. And I've kind of come to appreciate that it's almost more of like it's almost more for the person offering the thanks than than for me because like mm-hmm. we all enlisted and we kind of knew what we were getting into generally. But if you go like a little deeper on that, it's really like thanking them for like the sacrifices they've made. Um, and so there are right now as we speak you know we have over 10,000 troops i think in afghanistan at the moment um, i think we have close to that and like dispersed definitely in and around rack um, and then that doesn't even count the the hundreds of thousands of, of um, service members that we have deployed in one fashion or other in different corners of the of the world away separated from their families and they're making tremendous sacrifices that are you know it, it's it's more than just the sacrifice of yeah, that we see in like in like war movies and sort and that sort of thing. They're, they're making sacrifices and they're they're missing birthdays and anniversaries and they're um, like in my case, like I you know when I should have been figuring out my sexuality in my young twenties, I was just engaged on Iraq. Um, and so there's all there's all kinds of young men and women right now who are making like tremendous sacrifices because um, they you know listen to a call to serve and they believe in the United States um, and they want to do their part to like defend it, dep- you know, regardless of what. That might actually be, it's often you know, including putting their lives in danger. And so, like, that's the first part. I'd say, like, you know, recognizing that all these people out there are making sacrifices. But then the next part of it, um, you know, I think it's really important not to get too political. But you know, by not po- participating in our political process, we're allowing you know really important decisions to be to be made um, by other people. And so, you know, I think it's important that we all participate so that we can ensure the right policies are getting implemented. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I personally am like very concerned by like how callously like, we can kind of quickly we can go to war without there being a lot of sacrifice f- felt by the whole country. You know, I would like to see more. I just wish I wish the whole country as a, as a whole was like a little bit more um, engaged on and had a little more skin in the game when we sent people to, to war. Mm-hmm. That's great. Get out and vote. So on a final note, um, you mentioned you have a daughter. Uh, yeah. She will one day listen to this podcast. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say to her? Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, so for Lucia, I, lo- I love you. Um, I actually was just with her in Knoxville this last weekend. Um, but I love you, Lucia. I'm so proud of you. Just keep being a good, sweet girl. And I, I wish I was with you all the time, baby. I love you. Lucia, you have a fantastic father. And Pat, we are so grateful you took the time to chat with us today. You have already made an impact on your community here at Stern. And I'm, I just, I'm so excited to see what you do next. Thanks, Stephen. Thank Good you. luck recruiting. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Pat. <bye. laughs>